You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. Rewilding Earth podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. Dr. Jan van Buchel is a Dutch anthropologist, visual artist, art teacher, and filmmaker. One of Jan's areas of interest are the worldviews and environmental philosophies of indigenous people. Together with filmmaking group Rerun Production, he produced a series of documentaries on this subject, as well as films on philosophers such as Jacques Ellul and Arne Ness, who provide a critical analysis of the Western way of life. Principal among these films is The Call of the Mountain, focused on Ness's work on the topic of deep ecology. In 2013, Jan defended his doctoral thesis entitled At the Heart of Art and Earth, an Exploration of Practices and Arts-Based Environmental Education at Aalto University. Currently, Jan is Professor in Art Pedagogy and Didactics of Art at the Estonian Academy of Arts in Tallinn. Open Air Philosophy has just launched at openairphilosophy.org. Can you tell us a little bit about that, or a lot a bit about that? Well, basically, it is a web portal, you might say, a huge website, a resource bringing together a selection of the work of three prominent Norwegian eco-philosophers. And these three people are Arne Ness, Sigmund Kvaloy Settering and Peter Wessel Stapfe. I guess the first one, Arne Ness, is um, the best known. He was the one who coined the, the concept of deep ecology in the 70s. And now, uh, yeah, it was at the start of the deep ecology movement. But Arne Ness and Sigmund Kvaloy Settering, that they, uh, at some point, they met uh, Doug Tompkins. And um, he was very inspired by uh, the work, especially by the work of. Uh, RNNS, but also uh, Sigmund Kvaler Setring's ideas of uh, how to live a more uh, sustainable uh, life inspired by, for example, the people in the Himalayas that he often visited. A few years before he uh, uh, had a fatal accident, Doug, uh, he had the idea that of bringing together the, 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 some of the thoughts that these people have put out on a website uh, to make it available to a larger audience. So, what we, as a group of people assembling this together, what we did is um, we looked at texts that were available. We, some were more easy accessible, some were harder to find. And some of the texts, uh, especially of uh, Peter Wessel Sapfe, who's maybe the least known, but was, who was the oldest, he, he died the earliest. He was influential for the other two. Uh, some of those texts have never been translated into English. So we took care of that so that it also his work is, at least a taste of it is accessible now as a resource on this website. Man, this opened up so many things for me because in the 90s, I was learning everything. I had met Dave Foreman and we were working on um, the Sky Island uh, Wildlands Network. And when I would spend time at Dave's, I would, you know, that's when I, I learned about deep ecology. I started picking up these mm-hmm. books, Arnis and everybody else. Um, and it was just fascinating to me that you know, sort of like the Zen stuff that I was learning, the Buddhist things that I was learning, and and, it, and as it applies to the environment and ecology, just really, really got to me. And then I was struck immediately by the fact that the first I was hearing of it, and the only time I'd really heard of it, was in Dave's library, and it wasn't something people were talking about 
all the time as an organizing factor behind organizations and campaigns and the why behind what we do was not something that we discussed that deeply. There may be interesting to mention that uh, the launch on the 12th of January um, is uh, 11 years exactly after the RNS passed away. So in a way, it, it would have been nice if it was out earlier, but maybe also considering the times we're living in now, it, it may also be at the right moment that uh, maybe now more than ever, this why question going back to what actually are the root causes of the predicament we find ourselves in in society, relationship with nature, um, that uh, indeed if we want to think deeper into the issues that we can uh, find a wealth of materials from these uh, philosophers from this tiny country of Norway. And um, it's mm-hmm. interesting to see how their thinking has influenced others. Uh, also, uh, people in the USA like Dolores LaChapelle, for example, Mm-hmm. Some others uh, whom we quote uh, or uh, who, whom have added information on the website, uh, in the, for example, their writings on these philosophers. Maybe to, just to fresh up a bit what deep ecology in essence means is it's often a contrast with so-called shallow ecology, although RNS didn't like it so much to make this contrast because it was. It could often be derogatory that you put other people away mm. as just being shallow ecologists. But he said we, we also owe a lot to the efforts that sh- so-called shallow ecologists did in uh, protecting or uh, species or developing legislation. But the idea is deep ecology is that you go deeper, that you ask the deeper questions. That, uh, uh, for example. Uh, uh, you might say, well, we're all in favor of a different kind of agriculture, organic agriculture, permaculture. But uh, what uh, happens if uh, our agriculture infringes in, in upon uh, wild uh, wilderness or wildlife when there is a, a conflict there? So is it enough uh, only to think of from a human-centered perspective or do, do we need to embrace a larger perspective? And what uh, deep ecology would um, uh, foreground uh, I would say maybe its key principle is that all life forms have intrinsic value irrespective of the uses and needs of uh, human beings so that they have a right to exist on their own without our, our value judgments. And this, I think, this, this basic tenet, this idea that's also formulated in the Deep Ecology platform, which was developed in the 84, I believe, by RNS and George Sessions together, these eight principles, they spell it out more like there's value in the richness and diversity, which is also of life forms that also has intrinsic value. That that frame of thought, so these principles have been uh, guidelines, if you will, in developing a more ecocentric, uh, biocentric worldview, leading to actions uh, which uh, can be, for example, in defense of wildlife, say, uh, in Antarctica, without ever having been there, that you still you are uh, uh, activists uh, stand up for protecting these life forms because of this idea that they have intrinsic value value on their own not because we have some kind of use for them as food or whatever kind of utilitarian value we might think of but that they have a value in themselves so i would say that this idea of deep ecology has permeated has uh, seeped through in many different uh, uh, social and environmental movements. Uh, it maybe it may not be so recognizable that um, that 
ideas are uh, on a one-to-one -one basis attributed to one of these philosophers, or to RNS with this idea of deep ecology in particular. But uh, I think the, inf the idea, for example, of intrinsic value of life has um, uh, been picked up by animal rights activists and all, all kinds of also social movements. So it, it has found its way. And maybe uh, lately, I think you're right, if you look it up, it's, it's more difficult to access the material on it. So hopefully th this website will uh, fill up a bit uh, the gap there. It's interesting that you uh, that you talk about that. It's a, if I look at it from that angle, you're right. There are people, um, including Rewilding, of course, Dave and and um, and and John et al. Uh, are all um, interjecting the intrinsic value thing. And at any point that we possibly can in this discussion, when it comes mm -hmm. to preserving a per particular area or a network of areas. And so that we don't get dragged down into the discussions that people have about individual species and individual, you know, we really, really try to bring people back to um, ecological systems. And at the same time, I remember in the 90s when we were doing the mapping for Sky Islands, a robust discussion with Michael Soule and, and others who were talking about umbrella and keystone species and how we can cap that when it comes time to captivate the public or try to get their attention or get them to understand something, we found it was a lot easier if we put a charismatic megafauna on the page instead of maybe a salamander. So the way that we campaign and the way that we talk about why things are important, um, the intrinsic value statement typically comes in conjunction with something that we almost as a knee-jerk response know has to be there in order to get people's attention because we can tell when they're paying attention and when they're not um, yeah. especially online we can tell how long they read articles and how far into videos they go and if we lose their attention because we're getting too away from them in whatever way that we do um, we know that we have to keep their attention to make things happen and move how does all of this work leading with a deep ecology perspective. Maybe an interesting way to start here is um, there's this new book uh, that has just come out, uh, I think a month ago, less than a month ago, by uh, Richard Louf. It's called Our Wild Calling, How Connecting with Animals Can Transform Our Lives. And um, in it, he, um, I had contact on, on this with him. Uh, he, he starts off, I think one of the chapters is called Beautiful Acts. And this notion of beautiful acts is derived from Arne Ness. Yeah. And the idea is of a beautiful act, in contrast to a moral act, is that, um, well, maybe to explain the differences, a moral act is something that you, an act, uh, act that you perform, that you do, on basis of a moral principle, some kind of et ethical guideline that says this is what you are supposed to do, but often it would go against what you would want to do, against your inclination. And then a beautiful act, in contrast, is um, that you perform a moral act. You, you do what is necessary, what is ethically uh, the, the right thing to do, the proper thing to do. But you don't do it because anybody is pointing the finger, saying you should do this and you should not do that. But it is uh, an action that is uh, develops, that emerges because of, you're inclined to do it. You want to do it. You do the proper thing, even if it is a, uh, asking a lot of effort. But you do it with joy because you, 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 
intrinsically you, uh, you you feel that this is the proper thing to do but maybe an example of this is like if you're camping out in the wilds and you say you, you move some rocks or you make a small fire uh, then when the, you pack your things up again the next day i think most people who do that would carefully uh, put uh, rocks back in their places clean up the rubbish uh, leave all traces so that an, an, another visitor of this area this pristine place will not be bothered by your presence. So even if it is a burden that you have to clean up and you have to carry your uh, rubbish out of it, out of the area, you still do it with joy because of the, the privilege of having been there. So, and this Arnenes would say, this is a beautiful act. And he said, he strongly encouraged the environmental movement to move away from uh, developing, uh, encouraging moral actions, so the, the moral finger, the thing telling people how they should live, to developing beautiful acts that come uh, from people's own inclination, that they want to do the things that are proper. So I, I think to this discussion, like um, how to go about this, should we take an uh, iconic species to, to capture people's attention or uh, uh, put the emphasis on maybe the whole ecosystem and even um, species that are not so attractive or so visual or so uh, much uh, have so much PR value? Maybe another way to look at this is maybe in a more uh, deep uh, way of approaching it is that developing these beautiful acts require probably more effort. It's more uh, maybe rooting in education, in connecting people to nature in different ways that, uh, that they become inspired, that they uh, feel the connection, that they open up their senses and therefore uh, that they feel that the, this connection is something valuable to their own lives that they, they in growing up that they they, they, they they treasure this as part of who they are and um, that may this is also a point that Arnenes would make that in the end this will be much more um, uh, profound and more sustainable because it, it is something that is very deep inside of people he gave uh, an interesting example of this way of thinking actually two one was of um, of a, a Sami uh, activist. The Sami are the Lap people in the northern Norway, in Sweden and uh, Finland, uh, the indigenous people in the north of Scandinavia. At one time, there was a struggle to uh, uh, fight against the damming of a wild river, the Alta River. And then uh, one of the reindeer herders, this Sami people, was there also. And uh, uh, he was asked uh, why he was joining this blockade of... Uh, to uh, to stop the, the the construction workers and then he said well my reindeer they move through this river every season so if you make a dam here it's like um, cutting my arm off because uh, to me this river is as much part of me as my arm so damming this river is uh, also destroying something in me and arne would say that that's a larger view of oneself, you would call it the ecological self, of the wider self with a capital S, that you uh, see part of yourself in a larger environment, in a larger context. So through identifying with this larger ecosystem, it feels quite naturally to defend it because its harm, its being destructed, is something that also hits you personally. It's not like a separate thing. The other, I think, very graphic example that he would give often is that he, when he was looking, uh, um, when he was in his mountain cabin at uh, 1600 meters up in the, the Hardanger Vida mountain plateau, the mountain Hallingskarvet, he was also an amateur um, uh, chemist and he had some uh, 
uh, tubes with uh, uh, chemicals to, to, to study and had a microscope. And at one point he, um, he was looking through his microscope and at the same time a lemming, this small rodent, uh, was walking on his table. And then from this rodent uh, a flea jumped off and uh, landed in a drop of uh, liquid that he had on his uh, glass plate under the microscope. And he said, due to the, the tensions on the surface of this drop of liquid, he could not rescue the flea. The only thing he could do is look through the microscope and to see the, this uh, flea slowly uh, contracting and making these movements until it died. And he witnessed this. And for him, it was an extremely powerful experience because he said, with its six, um, what was it, six limbs, and these contractions, they look so much like how a human would uh, be when it is suffering, that he could not help but identify with this uh, flea, even if it is minuscule, uh, small. Mm. And also, the, it's a basically the same sort of as a Sami activist, that, that you see part of yourself, you see something human in what is more than human or other than human, and by, by this connection, this, re, this developing relationship, you, you, you expand that you, you, yourself is no longer limited to your own skin or your own sense of what you, your body is, but you include part of your environment in it. And I think these are just two stories that uh, maybe help to explain this, this more profound way of approaching things through uh, storytelling, for example, through education, to connect people on another way to not just maybe through a one-off campaign, although these are extremely well uh, worthwhile in itself, I believe. But I think the, 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 the deeper change has to come from these slower, more profound processes. You're listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. Did you know we also publish insightful and inspirational content from leading rewilding scholars, poets, artists, and organizers from around the world? You can visit rewilding.org and sign up for our weekly digest to receive brilliant, fresh insights on everything rewilding. You'll find over a decade of articles and news from the front lines of wildlands protection and all kinds of restoration efforts. Check us out at rewilding.org and don't forget to share it with friends. The guiding principle and factors that come into how do you speak for a place? You would come from this perspective, it seems to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, that's a nice way of formulating it. How do you speak for a place or this uh, notion of um, Aldo Leopold thinking like a mountain, but how do you connect to a mountain to a place that you, 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 uh, you run parallel, uh, at least in your imaginative capacity, with what the place would like to see happen? Or, but, but maybe just the word radical, I think it's an interesting observation. I think a lot of the the, the word, the wording, and maybe concepts that from the 80s, 90s, which were prevalent then, are no longer that uh, has the same ring to it. That like maybe also words like uh, environmental activist or eco activist. Interesting, the word radical in itself, its uh, its etymological root is uh, going to the roots. Radical mm. means going to the roots. So that uh, may be different from the colloquial. Like it's more like uh, usually associated with radical being activist. To me, it's interesting to look at maybe cycles that, like what we see happening now, is the the, the worries the, of people have about uh, the climate and uh, species extinction that you um, and uh, eco anxiety. Uh, that suddenly you have movements like uh, extinction rebellion uh, growing 
which are kind of uh, in a way similar to uh, the more uh, radical, to use the word again, movements of the 90s. So mm -hmm. maybe um, these movements will also look at uh, thinkers, uh, philosophers, or people who have searched for root causes to for the situation we find ourselves in. Maybe just a short example here that uh, of the relevance of the work of these people, like Sigmund Kuala Setring, the other eco-philosopher, Mm -hmm. He made a big point of uh, making a contrast between complicated and complication, or complex and complication. And uh, often these words are sort of uh, used intermittently or uh, uh, as, as if they mean the same thing. But he said, often nature is complex, the relationships in the ecosystem are complex, but it is not the kind of compli compl complications we get in a, a technical system or in a machine that uh, we, we suddenly uh, we, we make a technical, technological innovation and then suddenly when it is implemented, it has so-called secondary uh, effects, which might be uh, even larger than the original problem that the technology was meant to solve. So that the, in human um, built solutions, between the quotation mark, there's often this uh, complication upon complication Whereas the, the other side, the complexity, we're just start starting to appreciate how complex ecosystems uh, are, the, the, how the roots of trees uh, communicate with each other and so on and so forth. So to me, that's very interesting, this observation of uh, Sigmund Kuala Setring, because it is in a way similar to what we also find now in uh, working with wicked problems. Like often mm. problems, for example, associated with the eco-crisis, they tend to be what is called wicked problems, meaning that if you find one solution for part of one problem, then uh, the, the problem resurfaces in an unexpected way on another level, so that basically you cannot really solve uh, or pretend to solve uh, wicked problems because they are so um, complicated, so outspread, that, uh, so systemic, um, that the, the, the attitude that we're going to fix the problem is likely to to create a bigger mess the reason that i ask that is because a lot of not to be derogatory but it is mm -hmm. a, a literal iteration of the term shallow when you only mm -hmm. touch the surface of a deeper mm -hmm. issue and and that might be the way that one advocates for wolves in the war between hunters and and people who love wolves but also people who love an intact ecosystem and was being a part of that elk being a part of that in the Yellowstone region. That's a big deal right now. And mm -hmm. um, the argument overall is just about what wolves did when they were reintroduced to the elk herds and it's wolves and elk. And then some people, scientists will typically bring in a little bit more depth like, well, the reintroduction of non-native fish led to this, led to this, led to that, which is then you put the wolves in and you put the elk in that very complex environment and you start to see that nothing is black and white. Nothing is a toggle switch in nature. And that, that's when people start to drop out because I think my, my philosophy is that we didn't grow up with this philosophy of looking at all the parts, everything all in a whole and together and that we want to solve problems so we go after what we think is that problem yeah. and we try to knock it on the head and make it go away which is like what you said with 
uh, a wicket problem <laughs> that it can't, yeah. it, it isn't that simple, but people who think like you and Ness and, and all the other uh, deep ecologists would not run into that problem because they start from looking at the whole instead of yeah. the one thing, the one, the one thread. But uh, I think that they would still have like, like Arne and, S, uh, and the others also um, similar problems, um, like maybe a sense of despair or um, hopelessness that the, the inclination or the, the trigger to get into this mode, let's uh, do something and let's solve the problem is maybe also uh, what drove these three philosophers, but through their thinking, their reflections, they, they maybe found that uh, jumping too quickly um, to action uh, may uh, even uh, make the problems worse. So, but that doesn't mean that uh, in their case that uh, they were therefore not uh, impacted also by the, the magnitude of the problems that we're facing now. And I think there's um, an interesting aspect also, um, and that's maybe a bit unexpected, and that is humor. That is, I think, a characteristic, at least of the uh, Arnenes and Sigmund Palisetto. You don't, don't know so much, although he also wrote some uh, humoristic books, uh, Peter Wessel's Sopf. But it is um, uh, a way that through humor to uh, sort of see the relativity of things. The, so that the combination of the rigor of their thinking, the, the, the profoundness of going to the, to the core of, of what uh, the issues are, combined with, with taking it uh, also a bit uh, with a lighter touch, uh, not completely like uh, either or black or white. And it struck me, we made this film with a group of people on uh, Arne Ness and the Deep Ecology Movement in the, the mid 90s. Uh, it's called The Call of the Mountain. If people want to see it, it's on the internet uh, for free. But um, uh, one uh, deep ecologist or deep ecological thinker um, uh, from the U.S., Bill um, uh, Duval. Um, Duval, Bill Duval, right? Yes, uh, he makes the observation in this interview that there is a serious lightness about Arniness uh, that he is, he reminds him of the Zen teachers that he had. And this is combination, this maybe awkward combination of a serious lightness, and this lightness is this humor. And um, the same remark is made in the film by, um, with other words, by Vandana Shiva, who lived for some time in Oslo and got to befriend uh, Arnenes. And she says, he is so childlike, uh, Arnenes. Mm -hmm. He has kept his child inside of him, but still he is so brilliant in his thinking. So it's these two levels of being able to cope with the situation, uh, facing the seriousness, looking into the abyss, if you will, the, and uh, also not be completely overwhelmed by it. Well, there might be a third that you discovered. You wrote in 2013 your doctoral thesis at the heart of art and earth and exploration yeah. of practices in arts-based environmental education. Art, what? humor, and art. Well, tell me about the art part. What I did is, uh, from a background in arts education, I did this doctoral work on art, so-called arts-based environmental education. And what I was interested in is to find epistemological foundations, the, the pedagogical um, frame through which this is practiced. What it is, this art-based environmental education, it, it's in a nutshell that you try to uh, develop environmental education, learning about the environment, about ecology, nature. But you don't start with science, 
uh, but you start with an artistic process, that doesn't mean that you say uh, uh, science is rubbish or we should only do the art, but it is the idea that um, this artistic way of engaging with the natural world, world, so the more than human world, opens people up in a completely other way that, that they become sensitized, uh, often in a profound way. And through this sensitation, through this uh, using of the use of the senses, maybe uh, the beginning of a new connection with uh, nature is built. And then from there, people often are interested to learn more about science or about the, the other layers of developing this connection with nature. So it's art-based environment education, foregrounds artistic uh, approaches. And the contrast maybe with ordinary environmental education is that um, there often, if something artistic or art-like is done, it is often more like a form of play. And then this play is to, yeah, to make people a bit enthusiastic, to loosen them up, that they uh, become more uh, excited. In art-based environmental education, it's, uh, the idea is that it is in itself a way of learning, in itself a way of being. And yeah, for me, indeed, it is very connected to this subject because in this, if we are to develop, for example, these beautiful acts that Arne Ness spoke of and that uh, Richard Louf referred to in his book, then I think art has much to give because, um, to give an example, if, if you take kids out into nature and um, they, they in, in an excited mode uh, at schools where they often they, uh, there's uh, you know, a lot of information coming to them, they have... Uh, their mobile phones uh, they engage with each other in the virtual world, then if you come to a forest and you sit there for some time, uh, then it is often in the beginning quite boring that nothing is specifically happening. But if you sit there for half an hour on a uh, tree trunk, for example, then suddenly you might notice um, a mouse moving or you hear a, a vulture in, in the sky, but you're not quite there yet. And, um, Often, even that threshold to ask people to be silent for an extended period of time is too much because we are so conditioned by our gadgets, by all the time having a new uh, update or new information, new message coming, uh, which is more exciting than the real world which we find around ourselves. So I think if this is the case, then maybe we need to do something more uh, drastic. With, and I think art can be of great help there. For example, um, I give the uh, courses in what I call wild painting, mm -hmm. often in more uh, wild, uh, less touched by humans areas. And uh, wild painting is then to paint in wild ways, not maybe like uh, Jackson Pollock, that you throw the paint in all kinds of directions on the canvas, that could also poss be possible. But the wildness to me is this wild quality of um, doing something uh, unexpected, uh, that you uh, surprise yourself of what is possible. So, so I might ask participants to do this, for example, to paint the landscape that they find themselves in as wrong as possible. And it takes a bit of effort to what is as wrong as possible. Mm -hmm. So maybe if the sky is um, dark blue, then you paint it in orange or you paint the trees instead of green, you paint them red. That's the first step. And that is like a, a form of estrangement that you become a bit confused. And the, but um, also it, it's exciting or it's a bit uh, raising the curiosity, what is this going to be painting as wrong as possible? And then the next step can be after an hour or two to all these colors that are painted wrongly or supposedly wrongly, 
to then to start to paint the colors that you actually are perceiving in this landscape in this place on top of the supposedly wrong colors so you start to paint the green uh, use uh, shades uh, of green uh, on the red and the same you do with the sky and that becomes a completely different landscape than the usual starting with the arts is the most brilliant thing ever because you you give through that experience you have the sense of of the meaning of life itself someone's giving you the space and time to study the things around you that were often shuttled right into college without ever considering and if right. we're going into the sciences then we have no ecological foundation to base our decisions on what we're going to do with this knowledge we're getting right a very important difference in this approach is that Say if you have a, a guide, a wilderness guide or a forest service guide taking a group of people into an area with all the good intentions, what is most likely to happen is that you get something which is called knowledge transfer. So the guide, who is usually very eloquent in science or the natural sciences, will tell that this is the seed of this and this plant and it will germinate at this and this time. Or the bird that you hear there is actually the, the blue collar bird. So it, it is this uh, identifying the, the different elements in an ecosystem. There's in itself nothing wrong with this, but what is sort of the, the message that is going underneath it is that here I am the expert and I'm going to tell you what we are going to find. And in this art based approaches, this whole um, relationship uh, tilts, it shifts because it's no longer the teacher or the facilitator who's going to fill you in and what you're going to experience. No, it's more like uh, somebody who is like a catalyst, somebody who makes an invitation to engage in, in a process, but that the real discoveries of what it all means and how you are shaken on your ground uh, is done by the participant. They do the real work and therefore, often the, the, the impact is so profound. It's, it's like the people often have this idea that people open a kind of window that they have held closed inside of themselves for too long. And the profoundness of this experience is that the, the opening of this window is done by themselves. So it's them that discover the richness of the colors and the, the, the way light plays in different modes of the day. But expanding on that, not only the, the, the colors and the light, but just what it means to be at the place and to pay this deeply attention to, to what actually is um, happening there, what's emerging there. On the topic of philosophy, a lot of the best teachers in, in all types of philosophies and religions would be described as people who are guiding others to come to their conclusions on their own, to, to right. surface those things on their own. I mean, it really is a much more elegant way to approach life rather than the supposition of everyone's going to get in lines in front of the teacher. There's a chalkboard or uh, a stand or whatever, and you are going to learn what we teach. And I don't know that that makes for a world that new discoveries can come as quickly <laughs> as, uh, as is possible, right? I mean, because really the teachers never know everything. There's no one on the planet who does. In any expertise, everyone's always still learning. So I, I think that's wonderful. And I, I like that we've been able to take a little step back here on rewilding because if you listen to the podcast, you know that we deal with lots of people who are right in the thick of it, whatever that might be. Uh, and and um, these guiding principles, this philosophy going deeper as to why we 
why we connected with nature in the first place. No one listens to this podcast who hasn't done that in some meaningful way that has led to them being concerned with conservation and ecology, biology, conservation biology. So what was it? You know, maybe that's, is that, is that the way you would look at it? Is, is what was it that drew us in in the first place? And have we in any sense lost touch with that by being too busy printing petitions and not enough going on a hike, not enough letting ourselves, and I know the answer to that, is we are all much more busy than we would like to be and we would all like to be out on the river or on a, on a path <laughs> a lot more than we do. I think all, often with these sort of binary choices, it's one way or the other, it's to me not that absolute. I think with the hard work, like you described, developing petitions or doing a picket line or whatever activities that people do, um, these are also, I think, extremely relevant. But I think I'm often reminded of a point that Joanne Halifax made. She's an eco therapist, you might say, Buddhist therapist. And it is funnily, um, it comes from a uh, the world of uh, air travel that if you sit in the airplane uh, the, when you get instructions about the oxygen mask then the, the, the line that is repeated is that put on the oxygen mask on your own uh, face first before you put it on the, the somebody else like a child or a disabled person and uh, she makes the, um, this reference because she says we have to be if we do this work very careful that we also Put the oxygen mask on ourselves so that we look after ourselves that uh, for example that in being an activist or working hard uh, for the good cause that we don't stretch ourselves too far that we get burned out or even worse that we become cynical and we, we turn away from it so the, the nourishment to, to, uh, to uh, also sometimes take a break to go deeper in, into oneself to, to find some kind of rejuvenation or some kind of new inspiration by going back into nature at times, I think is extremely relevant. And I think, again, it is art that can be of so much service there to get more in touch with one's inner world, to be able to also to not to withdraw from the world, not to be like a monk in a monastery far away from it all, but able to also face the, the very real challenges that we are facing today. Uh, this is really, really great. The, the website... Once again, it's brand new, just launched on the 11th anniversary of Arness's passing, openairphilosophy.org. And there are lots of people to thank, starting with uh, Doug Tompkins, um, Tom Butler, and you, Jan, of course, uh, all of your work, your work on the movie. And I really appreciate that you came here today to um, slow people down maybe a little bit. It is a giant contribution to Rewilding Earth. So thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Jack, for your kind words. It's my pleasure to be on the program to share some of the things that we have been developing here. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. We do what we do because of you. This podcast is supported by listeners like you who long to live in a wilder world. Please consider donating at rewilding.org and subscribe to our weekly news and article digest while you're there. To go the extra mile, you can follow and share Rewilding Earth on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Bonus points for sharing this podcast with your friends. To listen to past episodes, go to rewilding.org pod. That's rewilding.org pod.